Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina has been on the hunt for more ancient stuff. Who's with us today, Alina? <laughs> We've got Howard Williams, who is a medieval archaeologist, a professor at the University of Chester and a published author. He specialises in the archaeology of death, burial and commemoration. And we're going to be talking about exactly that today. Hi, Howard. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, this is brilliant. I like the way we're pretending we haven't just been chatting for the last half hour before we started. And then we were like, oh, have we got a podcast to record? Um, Very much so. This is brilliant because like archaeology everything is dead so it's kind of logical but then when you read the questions we're going to put to you today it's not really logical is it so i'm really excited to learn stuff today um let's start with what sounds like a really obvious stupid question why do we dig up the dead yeah, so really, um, it's, it's the biggest question. Actually, the first point I always say as a proviso is that um, uh, mortuary archaeology, the archaeology of death, isn't simply about digging up bodies or graves, but mm. that's a huge part of what we do. We also look at above ground, um, look at cemetery spaces, memorials, mausolea tombs, you know, and the funerary landscapes of, 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 of past societies. So it's not all about digging up the dead, uh, but why do we dig up the dead? Well, Today, in today's world, we try and avoid it, where unless it's actually legitimate, we have a good question we need to ask of that particular period or cemetery, or in most cases, most mortuary archaeology is being done in commercial excavations ahead of development. So you might, you know, you'll be aware, or, re- or listeners will be aware of sort of the big case studies of recent times, like Crossrail, um, HS2, where obviously we're ploughing massive lines through the landscape, and you know we're excavating everything in its way, and that will take up bronze, um, Neolithic Bronze Age uh, cemeteries right the way up to 19th century Victorian cemeteries and churchyards. So, in other words, today we dig up the dead when otherwise it would be lost knowledge it would be destroyed it'll be lost to everyone and there's no way around it um, unless we want to have no more development at all um, and of course that's a whole issue that archaeologists therefore find ourselves on either side of debates about development and the other big case study where archaeologists find them on side either side is Stonehenge at the moment where some of my archaeology pals and colleagues are going stop the Stonehenge tunnel and others are going yeah it's all right let's do that um, <laughs> so we you know um, in the, in the present day, we have, um, you know, we, we are trying to be responsible and only excavate graves when it's absolutely necessary. But historically, this has been uh, 
meat and potatoes for um, for archaeologists since the since the Renaissance. You know that we've excavated tombs out of just uh, sheer um, interest, and it's the very foundation of archaeology around the globe, including its imperial and colonial dimensions of basically going to other countries, missionising societies, digging up their local cemetery, and putting the stuff in museums. So it's it's it's. It's, it's such an integral part of the, the history of archaeology. But today, obviously, we try and with our battery of scientific techniques, we try and be much more responsible at when and how we excavate graves. I mean, you've already touched on this, but can you properly define for us what mortuary archaeology is? Lay it out for us yeah. as if we had no idea what you were talking about. Well, often I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'll try my best anyway. So, I mean, the way I would define it in in broadest terms, it's the study of human relationships between the living and the dead in time. And that is usually seen as times past. You know, the the whole of human history and prehistory and the study of our um, human relationships with death and the dead, um, disposal of the dead, commemoration of the dead, um, and and relationships with uh, religious systems, social structures. But it's also about our present and our future because mortuary archaeology takes us right up to the study of our present death ways and looking at the material cultures and landscapes of death today and also our plans for the future. There's, not, there's hardly a cemetery around that's full and, and, and there's massive debates about the future of how we deal with the dead. And so part of what we're increasingly doing as mortuary archaeologists is using our information from the past to try and discuss and inform where we're going with our relations with the dead particularly in the digital age but in short i would say mortuary archaeology is the study of human relationships with mortality um that's the way i would put it in the broadest terms i love some of the things you've mentioned already that you are into uh, we have to get into this as we get further along yeah. in this chat but let's let's start with the obvious one um, what can a burial tell us about a person or people? See, I, I like this question, the way you phrase that, because burials, by definition, never tell us about the person that's in that burial. Um, you know, another proviso, I just want to, you know, I'm an academic, so I have to do lots of provisions. A lot of yeah. points is we're not just, we're not, we're not always just finding people in graves. Yeah. Uh, we're often finding cenotaphs or poorly preserved fragments of a person, uh, cremated remains, um, you know, and remains that have been ex- ex- exhumed or placed elsewhere, excarnated elsewhere, and then bits of the bodies have gone. So often we don't find a whole person, um, but also we find more than people. We often find objects. We often find animal remains, plant remains, substances, clothing. You know, so when we, you know, all of those elements we're, we're studying, not just a skeleton. So that's the first point. Uh, but even when we find a person, a articulated, skeleton, skeletonized human being once human once live human being it's never about that person and this is where one of our biggest most persistent myths we have in common um you know common sort of media understandings of burial archaeology is that we are digging up a person almost like they tripped into the grave with all the things they happen to have on them um that is incredibly rare and in fact the only occasions where we have people fixed in time as they were in life are not funerals, are not burials. And, the, you know, the disturbing and haunting, you know, um, examples of the Pompeii and Herculaneum human remains are, in, ironically, not really mortuary archaeology because they've not been subject to a 
set of choices by living living people about how to dispose of those remains, either where they died or near where they died or transported those remains hundreds or thousands of miles. So in other words, you know, some of our best preserved human bodies from the past that, that, that capture our imagination are kind of not really the focus of what I look at. I'm more interested in the, the living people who made the choices about how that dead person uh, um, was, was disposed of. And that means that what we're looking at is living people via the dead. It's almost the dead are part of our, the dynamic between us and past living people and the person the, that they're trying to dispose of. So th- the point I'm trying to get across in very long-winded way is uh, the burial tells us about past living people and their relationships with a dead person. Never about, what are we going to stick in the grave? Well, he liked that tool, so let's just put that there. I mean, sometimes it may be as prosaic as that, but often it's a much more complicated selection process of objects. And this is our greatest nightmare when we kind of deal with media and popular engagement, because people want us to be able to say, when we find a burial, "Ah, look, that was a person aged this age you know we can do osteological work on the on the skeleton and we can say they were at this age maybe this biological sex as far as we can determine and we can say something about the objects placed with them but it's rarely we're rarely just reading off an identity as they had it in life there's maybe a complex process of perhaps giving them things that they never really use but they were they hoped that maybe they would use in an afterlife or in the next if they'd continue to live and if you look at any child grave today in a modern cemetery tragic and sad as they are you'll see objects that are way older than the child's death age and that's because people are going back to the grave decades after uh, that child has passed away and adding objects that that person may have used had they lived and so that is a good example from the modern world so you'll see a two-year-old poor tragic two-year-old's grave and you'll see toys meant for a, a teenager on there or, or you know a late you know a, a, um, sort of an eight nine-year-old because that's their birthday age and that's a gift for them and the same we're seeing in ancient graves we're seeing a lot of objects that are brought by mourners and, and placed with the dead so it's often um, a much more complex process and the other answer to the question if i can quickly uh, add to that is um, often we we can't tell anything about the individual person by looking at one grave alone and so a lot of the new discovery stories you know roman roman burial found in seated position warrior woman found in chambered grave in vikings at viking site these are inferences about individual graves which are usually nonsense or at least dodgy because you're trying to make a story up about a single individual often what mortuary archaeologists do is we try and look at a population level we're looking at a bigger story how did death rituals change over time how do they change between areas between regions between parts of a cemetery we can't aren't, can't often get their names we can't often do this kind of csi gil grissom moment where you suddenly envisage the whole of their life you know yeah, um, you mean with like funky techno music in the background as you glare well, meaningfully at yes, a shard of bone well, and then determine everything well that is what i do in my own mind but of course yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in the world of reality which I, I also try to remember sometimes exists out there no that doesn't of course happen yeah, yeah exactly so i have the theme tune music and the who goes on all the time but um, but no no so obviously you've got the point it's not you don't like have that. a load of supermodels walking around the office either well that that that, that i've tried to arrange but the, the the university won't sort of fork out for that those additional it's not very extras, woke no. is it no it's not it's not at all and i can't you know there's there are limits to how what i can afford with my own salaries <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are priorities such as uh, muffins and, uh, and and chocolate and things like that. They're higher priority than supermodels. So you know, you know, within my job, you know, <laughs> I have that in my mind. My mind that I am some kind of detective who can reconstruct everything. But in reality, what we're doing is working with fragments. We're working with parts of story, and we're looking for gen-
general patterns. We're not trying to work out exactly uh, the details. Now, having said that, there's some really cool work you can do with the human body and you can work out diseases they suffered during life and maybe they had a really miserable time uh, you know, in their later life with this, this, this sort of spewing out wound that would have never healed. And you can say something about their lived experience, but often it's, it's not, you don't have a named person. You don't know exactly what they felt about the, the politics or what, their, what, what, what they hoped their afterlife destination was going to be. You're working in much more general patterns. So we're looking at what's the difference between, you know, what's happening in late Roman cemeteries in terms of general changes or what's happening um, with the rise of ancient civilizations and their changing burial rituals. It, we can't often get at those individual stories. I have to say that one of the most charming habits I saw, if there can be such a thing when you're talking about dead children, I was in Sicily this year and I was hunting for some World War One graves oh. um, and all the children were buried together. Yeah. There's a whole section of the cemetery and all of the children, local children that had died, they bury them together. So they're all together in the cemetery in a group, which I think is quite sweet. And it's actually that that's a good example of what we're finding in in the archaeological record often is that the, the relationships in death aren't a mirror of life. Those children may have gone to school together, but it's very unlikely. You're looking at probably, a, uh, unless you're talking about a disaster, like it's sort of an Abavan type disaster, you're looking yeah. at children that died over over 50, 100 years. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah, they went from like turn of the century up to now, but they yeah. just think it's nice if they're all together because they don't want them to be lonely. Yes, exactly. And it creates. So what you're seeing in death is a community that is made up of perhaps multiple generations, fictive or, you know, created materially connections across the generations that never existed in the living world. And so you're constantly aware you're dealing with this world of ideas of imagined communities past present and future when you're dealing with burial community burial um assemblages whether you're dealing with cemeteries where they're all laid out in rows or, or you're looking at um sort of more complex burial plots um, many societies didn't have you know defined bounded cemetery spaces they may have used multiple locations across a hillside uh, and and you're realizing you're dealing with perhaps complex choices based on gender age social status class um kinship groupings that you know we can't, can't properly reconstruct deciding where you get buried and so um it's a fascinating story but it's not just about using the dead to work out about the living it's about understanding the the complex process in which these communities of the dead were being uh, built up over time and you know the choice to bury children in one particular location you know, creates a different kind of environment than you would ever experience in a in a in the living living world and so there's this it's it's a deceptive environment but a fascinating uh, set of data and we can often pair it up with settlement evidence and realize that sometimes you know well the, the cemeteries aren't showing us the whole population we're missing whole sections of the population perhaps they were disposing of them in, in ways that we can't find and so when we're never seeing the whole of the past and we can often use a range of techniques in, co- in comparison with each other to sort of build up a story so it's it's fun stuff and of course it allows us access not only to the distant past where we have no written records but also to give us new stories about recent centuries do you know i can hear some osteoarchaeologists crying in their offices right now (laughs) (laughs) you're some of the i mean I, i totally agree with what you said um, about the osteoarchaeology that you can only tell a limited amount of things about these people but the i can just hear them saying no but you can but 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 that's all i can <laughs> well, i have a i have a i mean I, i'm i'm not on the science side so i'm not a lab coat wearing 
kind of um um sort of dude and and i think one of the one of the things i do i am a bit of loggerheads with some of my more scientific colleagues because the whole discourse of scientific analysis of ancient graves is a can do look at what we can find out and and a lot of them are, wouldn't wouldn't deny what i'm saying either but they but my my whole take is much more of a yeah but we've got to remember this and hang on <laughs> so i'm a bit more i'm a bit of more a killjoy mortuary archaeologist that's doubly negative is more morbid enough being a mortuary archaeologist but at least at least my uh, white coat white lab coat wearing uh, science boffin pals um say and look what we can find out whereas i'm more of a yeah but it's not that easy is it <laughs> <laughs> so you know i uh, talk about doom and gloom it gets even worse and you realize that it's, it's all gone it's only fragments but seriously it is exciting stories we can tell from different periods and times and i'm only one archaeologist and everyone has a different perspective on this evidence but i think we i, I try to be a, a, a positive but cautious about what we can say about any particular period or time 
we can't always do it in such a simple way. And if you look at Christianity, for example, the diversity of ways in which burial takes place over the last two millennium is phenomenal in terms of burial location, inside churches, when they get founded, outside churches. And also there's lots of general cliches. Like, oh, well, Christian burials have to be West East. They tend to be, yeah. But we also find examples that are, that are not. I've just been uh, reading a new report of a Finnish cemetery where they found a whole series of church burials from the 17th, 18th century, I think it was, inside a church, but they're north-south. And um, the most likely reason, well, we don't actually have a clue why in Finland in the 16th, 17th century, or 17th century, I think it was, we'd have a north-south burial. It doesn't fit, I suspect. It's a prosaic thing. They, they didn't have room. They wanted it to align on the high altar, so they stuck it in north-south. But, you know, we don't know. So there's all sorts of variations at different times, different places within a religious system where you can get buried in a very different way. Um, with, you know, and another good example in the late Middle Ages, we have lots of ecclesiastical ecclesiastical elite who were buried with grave goods something that if you talk to most people say well christians don't get buried with grave goods well i'm afraid you talk to many 15th century priests or 16th um, 15th 14th 15th century uh, archbishops they would get a mitre they would get um they would get a chalice they would get all of the 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 the, the symbols of their their status would go into the grave or some of them would and so we have um you know, a lot of, lot of um, within a religious system, you can have a lot of variety, is my point, a lot of synergy. And so we have examples, and again, because I've just been reading about Scandinavia, and uh, particularly uh, um, um, Sweden and, and, and also um, Finland. We have a lot of long after official Christian conversion in the, um, you know, at the end of the first millennium AD and then through to the 12th, 13th century, as you go further east and north, you're finding, you know, cremation burials continuing way late beyond official Christian conversion and cremation is supposed to be out you know out it's not the thing you do priests are supposed to be telling you not to do it but people are continuing to cremate relatives clearly generations after a formal christian conversion so my point is uh that's that's me with my negative hat on it, it can be a bit messy religion <laughs> and people don't do what the priest tells them and maybe the priest doesn't care i can give you a modern example of that would you like a modern example yeah go on Right. Well, I was doing a graveyard survey in a particular county of England, which will remain nameless um, to for preserve the anonymity of the vicar. And I said, uh, so, vicar, we've been surveying your graveyard and we've got these really interesting graves. But we don't, these recent sort of disturbances in this area here. Oh, that's my cats and dogs. I said, I, I thought, you know, you know, officially down the line, you know, cats and dogs is the diocese you know not I supposed to yeah but they won't know <laughs> I said, okay i said, wow. I said well, at least you're not burying ponies or something in the cemetery are you now i did wow. that for my daughter but i got into trouble he's really <laughs> gonna fuck with some archaeologist in 500 years time isn't he because unless someone leaves a note i think what you need to do is roll up a note in a bottle and airtight it that just <laughs> this reflects nothing about society in the 21st century other than the fact yeah that this vicar is a lunatic well i mean he was a particularly eccentric character he was responsible for multiple churches and in those multiple churches that they will find the burial of a horse or a small a small horse that oh no they no badges got at it and defra were, ch were finding him so they had to re-dispose of it in a legal fashion you can't for those listening you can't just bury horses in your back garden okay there it comes under defra it comes under animal disposal regulations i don't know the details but you will get prosecuted okay actually your own relatives you 
can, as long as it doesn't interfere with water sources and it's a certain distance from neighbours' houses. But that's a different story. But my point is, that, you know, um, I was just using it as an illustration of how someone who's supposed to be in a position of authority and knowing the legal status of his own burial patch um, was just basically inundating uh, um, with his own family pets uh, as part of a, a broader sort of, a, should we say, eccentric way of interpreting his own job. <laughs> and I think that's true of, uh, um, I think that's true of the past too, is that uh, you would, you, we anticipate that uh, even within a Christian context, you'd have a lot of, um, should we say, laxity in, the, in approaches to the regulations. <laughs> I'm going to ask you now, I'm not going to say body because I don't want to restrict you. Now I know what mortuary archaeology is and I'm learning stuff. What is the most interesting site that you have excavated? Okay. Um, right. Interesting. Most interesting. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's a number of different options here. Um, I will go with. Can I? Can I do two? Can I do? Yes, because it's you, right. Howard. Yes. I, I thank you. And um, because both involve bodies, but also absent bodies. Okay. My first one is I, I dug a um, with my uh, a, a Swedish colleague, Dr. Martin Runqvist. I excavated a ninth-century Viking boat grave in Sweden, and um, that was a fun uh, dig. Um, with um in in the county of Östergötland so it's sort of southern sweden um is their only boat grave cemetery uh, from the Viking age. Well, we thought it was from the Viking age, but no one had dug it. And it the surface traces looked like boat-shaped depressions where the, the, they'd obviously built a can and then the boat had rotted away, leaving these kind of ghosts of boat-shaped ghosts, sort of like of shallow depressions on the top of this ridge. But no one had excavated it. So our job was to excavate the smallest one where we do the least damage um, to assess the date and character of the cemetery. Uh, and it's like, it's a good example, a little snapshot of why you know, we dig not to just, you know, completely ransack a site. We dig to find out because there's no point in protecting an ancient site if we don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, so the, the, there's many a site in our landscape that we protect because we have a good understanding of what it is. Like you can tell that's a 19th century part of a cemetery. There's massive great gravestones. So we're not going to dig there because we know we're going to find bodies and we know, you know, unless there's a particular reason that a road's going to go through it or a Tesco is going to be built, which is very unlikely over a cemetery. I'm just being silly. Um, you're not going to actually you know disturb those remains but when you go back in time of course we don't often have the surface traces or if we do have surface traces we we don't know what it's marking so this was a unique site for the county and uh, you know we were given the task of we were allowed to do a research excavation because there's no point in preserving it if we don't actually know what it is and yeah we were able to confirm we had a small boat five meters long very badly preserved looked like it had been robbed um, but we did find evidence of the boat the clench nails very rusted clench nails where they put the boat together and we also found these wonderful amber gaming pieces they were beautiful so carved out of amber these little sort of little like little, little tea cakes you can get like little chocolate tea cakes you know they're sort of that type of size and they were probably hlatnatal pieces you know the sort of viking chess game um so they were they were amber gaming pieces and found 23 of those i also found some frost nails from um horses shoes so horses could uh, go on ice in winter so you have little spikes you add to the bottom of the treads of horseshoes so we found those suggesting they probably sacrificed a horse but unfortunately we didn't find the bones because the bones had been all eaten away so we didn't find a human skeleton we didn't find a horse sacrifice because all of that bone had been leached away by a thousand years plus of being in in very shallow 
a grave but we did find a knife a bead and 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 some some other elements that show that there had been a burial in this ship but all we were finding was a very poorly preserved version of it so that's my first um if i may um my first favorite site i've excavated with mm-hmm. swedish colleagues and and my second one if i can is um a monument i i was working on from 2010 to 2012 which is quite close to where i live and close to the university of chester it's at uh, in, in denbyshire the, the pillar of elizeg and this is a um really unique ninth century sh- um fragment of a um, of, a, of an early medieval cross shaft placed on a Bronze Age burial mound. And long, long people have um, s- sort of speculated about why this Christian monument would be placed on, a, on an ancient burial mound at least uh, 2,500 years older than it. And of course, um, no one really knew whether it was a Bronze Age mound. That was just a guess. So Bangor University and my university teamed up and we did a three seasons of fieldwork with permission of CADU, who uh, um, protect the site, and we excavated the Bronze Age bound, and we confirmed with we found secondary burials and cremation burials in Kiss. We confirmed it's a Bronze Age burial mound, but also we found interesting fragments of the story of of the the Christian early medieval monument on on the, this pillar with the Britain's longest early medieval Latin inscription on a monument, and um, commemorating the kings of Powys, who are basically the ninth century enemies of the the Mercians, and who are building their Offa's Dyke and Watts Dyke to the east. You know, these are the Welsh dynasty who are sort of struggling to maintain their independence against big bully boy neighbours um, in in the early Middle Ages. And, and uh, they they put their cross on top of this ancient mound, we think, as a way of sort of claiming the past, of claiming the land, when they were sort of surrounded on all sides, both by, by Welsh rivals and Anglo-Saxon rivals, by more powerful uh, kingdoms. So they were sort of really drawing symbolically on the past with this monument to sort of define, define themselves. But anyway, there's a much bigger story I could tell you about that. But I, I can't really, it's a bit of a, um, a toss-up between Scamby, the boat grave cemetery I excavated, and uh, the Pillar of because while we didn't find a, a another again we didn't find a skeleton we did find some cremation burials from the early bronze age that proved that the mound was far older than the christian cross put on top of it i like the boat burial i think the most that one's yeah. drawn me wait say that again the boat burial no the whole sentence i like the boat burial <gasps> the best Oh my God, she has just ranked booty oh, stuff above everything else. Oh, <laughs> Kate Jameson's heart is going to break when she hears that. Your weir oh, yeah. is literally going to break down. I've lost track now. I don't. Uh, Alina <laughs> is famous for her total indifference to what she refers to as booty stuff. Oh, Other people right. refer to it as naval history. to the point where we have taught her this year the difference between a ship and a boat and a submarine is not a boat and that was as far as we got but i feel like we've just taken a mass this is a neil armstrong moment well i think i think if you're going to break through into naval history you starting with the vikings is pretty good place to start so i've got to ring giles after this alina giles uh has kindly sent her a collection of naval uh books to get her shit together (laughs) <laughs> so, i can't believe you tricked me what a cruel trick to me. you did you said it no it's because i was i was taken by the um the amber um pieces so shiny things not the boat 
the shiny things, but I also think it's really interesting the kind of grave goods that were found. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. Absolutely, that's, uh, that's a good way of dig- literally digging digging yourself out of that grave. <laughs> uh, but um, the amber is wonderful because it kind of glows in sunlight. It's a wonderful substance, um, you know. Um, and so, you know, I, I must admit, I, I've I've dug up some interesting stuff in my time, but that was one of the top top finds because it was just they are just such a wonderful i don't know it's just a difficult to describe i mean you know everyone's probably encountered a bit of amber that's you know as a bit of jewelry but these were just big chunks massive chunks you know well in my head now i'm thinking can we drill in get mosquitoes dna dinosaurs (laughs) viking dinosaur dna it's gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) i can see the film (laughs) where your mind goes alex it just amazes me sometimes i love it there's a t-rex i'm there (laughs) i am an eight-year-old boy when it comes to dinosaurs Uh, you've touched on this throughout but um, how does mortuary archaeology uh, interact with other types of archaeology you've mentioned the sciencey boffins and things but how yeah. do you I essentially leech off each other to further your academic gains <laughs> we, are, we are i mean archaeology is is one big leachy subject it must yeah. be said archaeology is i mean uh, i use lots of i, I um there's different ways you can look at it i mean archaeology is a bit of geography a bit of history a bit of anthropology you know a bit of sociology it's a bit of everything or you could say if you want to be really haughty about it and i do say this to historians all the time so i don't see why i should be shy you know um every, uh, history is just a specialized form of archaeology where you're mainly looking at the written sources which is a, a small subset of a broader story of human history so i should now run away as you ran at me no, no so what is it that historians say about the archaeologist selena uh, well, go on, go on. Yeah, I can't remember. We've had this before. <laughs> Something uh, along the lines of sitting in a hole while someone does the real work, I think. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> it's like the army versus the air force thing, isn't it? It, it is, it is. There's a, there's a healthy, I mean, I'm in a history and archaeology and... department, so we have a, a healthy banter is the phrase I call it when I'm not yeah, swearing. It's just them. bants, it's japes. <laughs> how, how we laugh as we uh, <laughs> throw things at each other down the corridor. No, no, it's, it's good fun. No, but I mean, we are, we are connected to many other different types of other subjects, first point. And second point is we are connected to many other types of archaeology. So mortuary archaeology could be seen as a sub-discipline when we look at death. But of course, you know, you cannot dig a settlement in, in, from later prehistory and expect to not find you're going to find bits of human remains in some periods and places you know settlements are one of the key places or next to settlements are one of the key places that people have buried the dead so there's there's not even a spatial division often between burial archaeology and settlement archaeology you're just doing archaeology and you will find bits of evidence of people's lives and people's mortality you know that's the first, that's that's the point i want to make in terms of where we dig you cannot be a mortuary archaeologist and expect to only find skeletons or expect to only survey gravestones you've got to think about if you do if you're doing a survey of a graveyard you've also got to look perhaps at the architecture of the church or you know you'll be looking at the local settlement so you know landscape archaeology settlement archaeology mortuary archaeology they're all a mess overlapping with each other and then there's various sub-disciplines we use there's a massive revolution going on at the moment of ancient DNA work, which is obviously overlapping with mortuary archaeology, and mortuary archaeology is overlapping with um, stable isotope analysis, so the bone chemistry work that's being done, so we can hopefully find out more about where people came from, as opposed to where they were buried, which is giving us a whole new you know, ancient migrations were out completely out of the conversation 20, 30 years ago. It was all, oh no, you can't talk about migration. Of course, now we've got 
you know, evidence of people moving around in the ancient world, in, in prehistory, in the Middle Ages, you know, coming out of our ears in terms of bone chemistry analysis, you know, because we can see the difference between the teeth and where people grew up in terms of their local diets and the local environment versus where they ended up being buried. So we, you know, there's so many sub-disciplines of, of, of interaction between our um, mortuary archaeology and other kinds of scientific analysis and, and, and the questions we're asking. So, and, and you know, to be absolutely honest about this the banter with history, you know, often a lot of the subjects were overlapping. So one of the things I'm particularly interested in at the moment is uh, war memorials, you know, which is a massive area of study uh, for historians. But of course, it's an area I've, I've published on from an archaeological take on particular war memorials and, and mortuary Ooh, landscape. Right for the Great War Group, because Owen Rees did like the, his, the historian ancient connotations of modern war remembrance but yeah i'm gonna nag you to do an article well, for I, I, well I was happy to, i mean it's, it's really interesting because i mean I, I, when i started going to the national memorial arboretum in staffordshire and i was realized how much of it is built drawing on prehistoric and ancient illusions and that's a you know that's a naughty site that's a millennium site that's a 1996 seven startup mm. and then 2000 and it's it's stacked full of it and of course the armed forces memorial is designed apparently it doesn't but it apparently is supposed to look like the barrows are around Stonehenge and Avebury and the the hen and it do, I mean from an archaeological point of view it looks nothing of the kind but that's the inspiration of the architect and th th there's a solar alignment it's apparently inspired by Mace Howe the Neolithic passage grave from Orkney so our modern landscape is replete with sort of prehistoric and medieval and ancient fantasies that are drawn from our, our ancient archaeological discoveries so if you put it this you can put it in different ways you could say at one level we're archaeologists are responsible for all the crazy war memorials that we're <laughs> around us in our landscape and uh, not crazy or interesting should we say <laughs> that's a bit more less derogatory you know we were you know at the results of ancient times the results of our discoveries are, are interplaying with our sort of various visions of colonial imperial and military pasts so i, I think uh, you know we, we 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 can't stay out of those conversations there's a lot of overlap <laughs> um, my next question is are we going to dabble a bit of public archaeology and obviously when you're stuck in that lecture hall with your lovely lecturer this subject comes up quite a lot doesn't it um yeah. ethics and things like that Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this is an area I've been increasingly interested in. It's never, you can't get into mortuary archaeology, I mean, uh, without it being there. So it's not as if it's a revelation for me. When I was doing a, my doctoral research at the University of Reading back in the late 90s, is, can anyone remember 2019, let alone the late 90s? I don't know. But anyway, you know, back in the day, um, you know, you start into a piece of research on, on, on mortuary archaeology, you, you're aware of the ethical debates. And from the 80s and 90s, you know, British archaeology, obviously slower in the uptake than in Australia, New Zealand, North America. But we were aware, you know, that digging up the dead is, is not a, a neutral space. It's not a, no, they're there, they're research materials, let's just dig. You know, we're, we, it's, it's not a new revelation. And so, but, but in the last um, 20 years, this topic has you know the number of ways it interfaces with our work has been it's just exploded in so many ways so that first of all there's the fact that the value we put on the historic landscape whether it's stonehenge whether it's historic battlefields or shipwrecks can i bring in shipwrecks you know um you know whether it's on land or sea you know the value we put on them is is related to the presence of human remains or the uh, the, the fact there were places where people died you know um uh, and and are memorialized so there's a, there's an ethical you know, our values the very value we put on ancient monuments and sites is related to the presence of the dead 
it's, it's been a long debate about how and should we display the dead in museums, store them in museums and in university collections. There's a whole de international debate and ongoing controversies about repatriation and reburial of human remains and sacred objects that will, you know, not only those that are robbed um, um, and plundered in, in colonial times, but also ones that are still on display in debate, debated, uh, you know, and discovered quite recently. So even in the last decade, we had the big uh, neo-pagan controversy about Avebury's Alexander Keeler Museum and their claims for the child skeleton on display there. To, to be reburied, you know, because of not an ancestral but a spiritual link between pagan people today and those Neolithic ancestors. We have, you know, another example on the headlines recently is the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford has finally, I would say finally, because that's my opinion, removed their Ecuadorian shrunken heads from display, uh, as well as other human remains, such as a child Egyptian mummy. So these, these are this is not new. Some some of my younger scholars um, colleagues seem to think this is a new revelation that we've, oh, we've suddenly discovered that these objects in museums have a colonial history. And you know, with 2020 and the the the, the aftermath of uh, George Floyd and so on, this is you know an accelerated debate, and rightly so. But it's not it's not new, and and it's it's been an ongoing topic of discussion. Uh, you know, then we have another area of ethics is the fact that as long uh, alongside our, our work with um, mortuary remains, there's a huge illicit trade in antiquities, much of it robbed from graves, you know, not only in the from the um, 19th, 20th century, early 20th century, ongoing robbing and ransacking of, of, of cultural sites around the world facilitated in war zones, especially, you know, from Iraq, um, Syria, you know, and, and archaeologists have not not only been lobbying and trying to participate in you know um uh, trying to stop and um this this happening but also in you know we are complicit in it in some ways and often indirectly um and a, a recent example i waded in on last year um was on the um the uk auctioneer hansen's selling uh, putting on sale early anglo-saxon artifacts and human remains um uh, and um uh, you know, a lot of archaeologists, one of the rare points where I agree with most of my archaeology colleagues, where we all agreed on social media, this was a moment to make a point of of, of, of objecting to the, the, this sale. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not just um, those kind of ethical issues, though. It's also that it's, it links to heritage tourism. You know, this year, um, joking aside about 2020, don't open another Egyptian sarcophagus, you know, Egypt has been powering on you know with massive public media spectacles of their excavations and displaying human remains because it's linked to their their flailing heritage tourism industry you know with coronavirus and with terrorism attacks and all sorts they they want to promote egypt through sarcophagi and mummies and so there's a there's a, there's that dimension but I, I also but the other other areas i'm also interested in are things like how our popular culture is increasingly archaeological mortuary archaeological so i I've, I've actually written an article about the tv show vikings and how many funerals in it there are and how they're all different and while some of them are inspired by fantasy saga literature a lot of it is also coming from archaeological sources so you know you watch a tv show um uh, a decade ago um or 15 20 years ago you maybe see one or two funerals now our tv our historic dramas no matter how fictional fantastical they're packed full of funerals and so this is a real area of in interaction with mortuary archaeology is that we 
we have this sort of pop culture funerals that we from and Game of Thrones is something I've also commented on with so many from George R. R. Martin's fantasy medieval world is is packed full of cremations but within a sort of late medieval sort of fantasy genre and so mm. that's a really interesting area of intersection with my work on cremation practices so um, I find it very interesting you know it's not about oh he got it wrong um, but it's it's about what does that tell us about our relationship with you know imagine past funerals that we we pack our our tv fiction with these funeral scenes um so i'm really interested in those kind of issues as well so i suppose there's the ethical issues of what we do with the dead and how archaeologists work with the dead but also the broader political social context in which we work and the pop culture is really fascinating too um yeah, so it's a, it's a real rich field, and so I've I've just uh, edited four books on this, or three books, and I've got one pr- um, conference forthcoming. So it's an area I'm really interested in, multiple angles, and I've also done a lot of blog posts on The Walking Dead and the the mortuary archaeology in The Walking Dead, a fictional you know post-apocalyptic world, but where funerals seem to really matter. You know how you bury people and the choices that fictional world presents about how we deal with the dead. So I, that's why I made the point at the very beginning about mortuary archaeology. Yes, yeah, sure, it's about digging up the past and learning about past societies but it's also about a conversation about what we think about our mortality and about what we think about our our future relationships with the dead in the digital world and in, in into the 21st century and beyond howard thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about mortuary archaeology because uh, we are a depressing couple of buggers as well and we <laughs> love this stuff um it's absolutely fascinating. There's so much more to it, isn't there, than digging a hole and going, whoops, I've hit a skeleton. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. I'm, there's so many angles to it. I love it. Join us tomorrow when Mary Ann Lund will be with us and we'll be talking all about Renaissance mental health. So we'll be talking about what they termed melancholy. It's a really interesting chat, so don't miss out on that one. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.